Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Good morning and welcome to class number eight of our virtual HOA Condo Academy. My name is Beth Mulcahy and I'm the managing senior attorney for the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome to class number eight of our 2022 Virtual HOA Academy. We have a lot of great topics that we're going to be talking about here today, creating a budget, how to read HOA condo financials, and how to prevent fraud and embezzlement in your associations. Let's talk a little bit about what we're going to be uh, discussing today. So we're going to be talking about everything financial pertaining to associations today everything you need to know to stay out of trouble and to keep your association in good financial health. Um, first, we're going to be talking about how to create a budget, how to factor in this escalating inflation rate that we're seeing in our country. How can you read your association's financials, whether you're the treasurer, the president, board member at large, or other officer in your association? We're going to give you some tips on that. Lastly, we're going to talk about a scary topic, um, how to prevent fraud and embezzlement in your association. And that is the topic, unfortunately, that we, it's scary, people don't like talking about, but it's necessary because there are so many examples of associations that have um, had fraud occur, whether it's through a management company or maybe through a board member. So we're going to give you tips so that that never happens to your association. First, we're going to start in and talk about what happened in the legislature this year. So some of you may have been following this year's legislature. It was actually really kind of an exciting year. There were 25 bills that pertain to associations that were introduced. We ultimately ended up with five bills that were passed. Okay, so first things first, when did these bills become law? Um, So these five new laws are all going to go into effect September 24th, 2022. So we have kind of like a nice honeymoon period right now to plan for when those bills will be going into effect. Okay, we're going to need to just pause for one second. Sorry, we're having technical difficulties with my office today on the internet. Sometimes with technology, we have these little snafus. So uh, we apologize for that. Um, So just as a refresher, um, there are a number of new laws that are going into effect um, on September 24th. We've already talked a little bit about some of them and we're going to be, you know, continuing to talk about them right now. So the one that we're on right now is vacation rentals and short-term rentals. Remember that um, just as a refresher, each landlord owner has to provide emergency contact information to the city or town. If they don't do that, it's a $1,000 penalty for every 30 days they don't do it. So September 24th, those landlords better have their ducks in a row. Um, Next thing is the landlord owner has to obtain a permit um, from the city or town. The next thing is that prior to offering a vacation or short-term rental for rent, for the first time, the landlord owner must notify all single-family residential properties adjacent to, directly, and diagonally across the street from the property that the property is being used as a short-term or um, vacation rental. Um, and I think it will be really helpful for associations to, you know, if we have a list of the vacation rentals or short-term rentals for your associations, maybe to provide this information to those renters, uh, excuse me, to the landlord owners so that they comply with this new law. 
Um, a third part is, is that the owner of the short-term or vacation rental property has to um, display the local regulatory permit that we talked about about a minute ago or license number, if any. On each advertisement for the vacation or short-term rental property, the owner maintains. And the advertisements are going to have to also have this permit number. Um, lastly, a city or town is going to require that the vacation rental or short-term rental maintain appropriate liability insurance um, to cover the vacation or short-term rental in the aggregate of at least $500,000 or to advertise and offer each rental through an online lodging marketplace that provides equal or greater coverage. So I think we can see that the legislature has spoken and they want to hold landlord owners more accountable as they are uh, navigating short-term and vacation rental properties. Okay, this bill also states that a city or town um, may deny an issue of a permit for a rental property in a few circumstances. So we're going to talk about that. If they don't provide the required information, if they don't pay the license or permit fee, if at the time of the application, the owner has a suspended permit or license for the same vacation or short-term rental, if the applicant, the landlord owner provides false information, or if the owner is a registered sex offender or has been convicted of any serious felony in the last five years. So really interesting how the cities and towns are getting more involved um, in the regulation of these short-term rentals. And lastly, a city or town that requires a local regulatory permit or license must adopt an ordinance to allow the city or town to initiate an administrative process to suspend a permit or, li permit or license for a period of 12 months if three minor or one significant verified violations occur. So this is really beefing up how we can handle these short-term rentals and violations and bad tenants. And it's going to be more important than ever to document all of these um, violations by contacting the city and the police when appropriate. Um, so we're going to be talking more about these new regulations, new statutes that are going into effect on September 24th as we near the, the effective date of when these laws are going to be going into effect. So we're going to be talking about them again um, at our first Friday, which is coming up here again soon, the first Friday of September. And then we'll also be talking about them at our September Neighborhood Services Seminar as well. So you'll have plenty of opportunities to ask further questions as you continue to navigate this as we go forward. Okay, so we spent a bunch of time on the new legislation, but it's really important that all of our clients know about that. Now we're going to dig into the topic for today, which is how to create a 2023 HOA budget. So just as a, a starting point, a community association budget is an itemized summary based upon the anticipated income that your association gets, right? And your income is from assessment income that you get um, from the owners paying assessments or dues to the association. And then your expenses, which would be like what you pay your management company, what you pay your landscaping company, your lawyer fees, your insurance fees. And so the budget is just a summary of your income versus your expenses. And it has to balance out to zero at the end of the year so that you make sure that you have enough money to meet your expenses. Most association documents require a board to adopt a budget every year. So for 2023, we're in the zone right now. The time to be doing it is typically August, September, October, November, with the absolute latest that it should be approved at your December board meeting. 
Um, most associations' fiscal year is the calendar year, so you're going to need to have that new budget in place by December 31st, 2022. What happens if you can't agree on a budget? Um, for 2023. What typically happens is the budget for 2022 just carries over into 2023. Hopefully you can get it passed sometime early in 2023. Who prepares the budget? So it really depends for your association. What I can say uh, is that you know, sometimes you have a budget committee. Some really large associations have a budget committee. Um, sometimes your property management company does the first run of the budget. Sometimes your association's treasurer, um, sometimes the president. It really just depends. Every association is different. And usually what happens is there's key people who prepare the budget and work on it before it actually comes to the board for its first review or first discussion. Um, and so that's very common that you may have like a, a less than a quorum working on it. Typically the treasurer is pretty involved with the management company working on the budget. Make sure if you're an association that you're checking your, your governing documents to determine if there's any special requirements regarding your budget. Um, sometimes the members are required to participate in the budget process for some condominiums, especially, but most times the association's board is responsible for approving the budget. But in some cases, some condominiums require the owners to approve the budget. Um, and if you're one of those associations, it, it's an extra step that's going to take a little bit extra time. So check your documents um, to make sure that the board alone can approve the budget. And you don't also need to have the owners approve the budget um, at a regular board meeting. Okay, let's talk about what are the steps to complete the budget process. We're going to be sharing with you in a few minutes here um, a great summary cheat sheet that we've created on creating a budget for community associations. So I hope that you will take that as a great takeaway piece back to your board on some tips on how you can uh, prepare your budget. It's kind of a deep dive of what we're going to be discussing here today. And we're going to be sharing that with you on Zoom and Facebook Live here shortly. Okay, so what are the steps to complete the budgeting process? So we already talked about when you do it, right? We're in the zone right now, August, September, October, November. First thing you should be doing is look at last year's budget. So 2022's budget um, and compare the differences between what was budgeted and what was actually spent. Now, very few associations are going to have a picture perfect budget, right? Because maybe the pool pump unexpectedly went out and we had an expense for maintenance or a replacement of a pool pump um, that we weren't anticipating. And, and maybe that was $5,000. And that means we got to trim $5,000 somewhere else. Or maybe you're starting to see an increase in the number of owners that aren't paying their dues on time, their assessments, which is something that we are definitely seeing. And in that case, the income that's coming in may be a little bit less than what you had anticipated if 100% of the owners were going to pay their dues. So talk through why are things different? When we look at the 2022 budget, you know, you're going to be only looking at the numbers, let's say through the first seven months of 2022. You know, why are there variances? Why is something higher? Why is something lower? We're hearing from a lot of clients, and I do know just with my association as well, our utility expenses are significantly higher than they were in 2021. And we didn't, we anticipated an increase, but we didn't increase anticipate that they were going to almost double 
in 2022. So that's obviously a concern. And in some cases, you know, we're looking for water leaks. In other cases, these are just expenses that are going to carry forward in the future. So we need to kind of look at last year's budget, 2022, look at the variances and determine, hey, are these things that we're going to see again in 2023? And if so, factor those into the budget. Another thing you should do is evaluate the needs of your community for 2023. Um, do annual assessments need to be raised because we're seeing increases due to inflation? Inflation is at 9.1%. And are we having step-ups in our contracts? Like, is the management company going to be paid more in 2023? Are we going to need to replace the cool decking at the pool? You know, are there going to be expenditures that we can anticipate, maybe even after looking at our reserve study, um, that need to be done in 2023? Are there expenditures that are a result of the economy, you know, being in a little bit of a tailspin right now with the inflation rate? We kind of have to be fortune tellers, right? We have to look in the future and be like, okay, what's this year 2023 going to look like? And there's a lot of variables. So we just have to be conservative and try to make the best choices we can possible. Assess the needs of the community for the future too. We talked a little bit about what projects need to be done in 2023. Is it something that we can push off another year or is it something that, hey, this really needs to be done? When was your last reserve study done? This is a really important time. You know, reserve studies should be updated probably about every five years. And so take a look at, hey, do we need to put into the budget, a reserve study, you know, costs to um, update our reserve study. Do we need to update our CCNRs this year? Have our CCNRs not been updated since 1980? You know, you may want to put a placeholder of about $5,000 uh, for updating your CCNRs in there. And then you're going to kind of have to play this game where once you're putting numbers in, and most people, most associations do use a Excel spreadsheet um, for this purpose. I have a sample one. If we have any associations that are self-managed or who just want to see one, where it really helps having the Excel spreadsheet with all the formulas already put in. Um, and so let's see, I'm hoping that you guys can still see me. Let's see. I think you can still see me. I'm getting messages on my computer. This is just bad at technology, David. It's not been a good day here. But anyways, so, um, you know, you're going to have to play with the numbers a little bit because you kind of know what, you know, how much of an increase that you can do without a, a membership approval by looking at your association's documents. And you're going to have to play with the numbers. Like, First, you have got to look at what the expenses are going to be. And then you're going to need to look at the income. And if your expenses are exceeding your income, that means you need to increase your assessment rate. So you have to look at what your CCNRs say about increasing the assessment rate. Do you need a vote of the membership? above a certain percentage in most instances you will do you need to have a special assessment um, and this would be a good opportunity to get your attorney involved for your association and get some advice about the ballot if you need to send out a ballot um, to increase the assessment rate etc ask questions of your vendors so contact your attorney contact your insurance agent contact your landscaping company if it's not already written into the contract are there anticipated increases that we can expect in 2023 that we need to factor into our budget. 
Look at the contracts for your association. Some of these step-ups in the amount that you're paying are already written in the contract that you've signed and you're contractually obligated to pay more to the vendor each year. And so take a look at the contracts and make sure you get the correct amount that's going to be owed to the contract based upon what the contract says. Get that into the budget. Um, Because you wouldn't want to be putting in, you know, let's say that your management company gets a 5% increase in 2023. You wouldn't want to be putting in the 2022 numbers because right off the bat, when you start 2023, you're going to be, you know, down 5% in that category every month. At this point, after you get all of this information, after you've contacted your vendors, looked at the contracts, evaluated the 2022 budget for overages, that's when you really need to strategize about and analyze the information obtained and kind of play with the numbers on the Excel spreadsheet to determine what your sweet spot is in terms of what we think the probable anticipated expenses are versus how much income we have coming in on assessments. And then you're going to have to back it out and determine how much you know, per month or per quarter, depending on what your, how your assessments are collected, the owners need to pay. And again, if there's an increase that requires a vote of the membership, you're going to have to get working on that right away so that we can implement that in January of 2023. At this point, then you will want to bring the information to the board um, and have the board discuss it. Most boards have a discussion during a regular board meeting and they talk about the numbers, whoever prepared the budget, maybe it's a treasurer or the management company. They go through the budget line by line with the board for 2023, and they explain this is why we did this variance from 2022 to 2023. Oftentimes, they have the 2023 right there on the Excel spreadsheet, so you can see the numbers right next to each other. They should give an overview of why line items were increased or decreased um, and the rationale for that. Um, Try to keep it simple. I know that when you're preparing the budget, and I've done it for my association, so I know when I was a treasurer, you get stuck in the weeds. It's a weedy project, right? And you don't want, when you bring it to the board, to have it be confusing or have a lot of weeds and making it really difficult to understand. Basically, we just want to give them the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. After evaluating all of the information from 2022 and contacting our vendors and strategizing about increased costs based on contractual prices and the inflation rate and increased utility rates, this is what we think our expenses are. And yes, I know it seems strange that the utility is 30 or 40% higher than it was in 2022, but we're looking at the trends in 2022 and that's where we think this is going. And so maybe just call out the different um, subparts on the budget that might cause people to raise their eyebrows. If there's an increase that seems a little out of the norm or higher than usual, explain that away. Then address trends. You know, inflation, of course, is a big one. Like I said, the utility bills. And be open and ready to answer questions because there's a sticker shock. People like to think that their assessment rate is always going to remain the same. The reality here is that the assessment rate should be going up every year. Um, When associations come to me and they say, we haven't raised our assessment rate in eight years, um, and they think it's a good thing, I'm thinking to myself, that's a sign of mismanagement by the association's board because 
everything is costing more every year. And so that means that if you're keeping your income at the same level and your expenses are going up, you're probably deferring maintenance. You're probably not doing capital improvement projects that you may need to be doing. And it may not be in the best interest for the property values of your association. So a couple closing points on budgets. Um, start now, please. Make sure that you are being strategic in how you're evaluating the numbers from 2022. Get your attorney involved if you need to have an increase in the assessment rate that requires a vote of the membership. Think about getting a new updated reserve study. Look at our cheat sheet on budgeting for community associations, which is an awesome summary of um, this entire process that we just talked about. Um, and you can take that back to your board if maybe you're on your board, but your treasurer isn't here today. You can take that back to your treasurer to show that person. And just remember that we're here as a resource for you. If anybody wants a sample budget, you can email me and I'll give it to you for free. My email is bmulcahy at mulcahylawfirm.com. And go to our website and, and send a request to the website at mulcahylawfirm.com. And we can provide that to you by email and you can play around with it, look at how we structured it um, for the sample association. Okay, so good luck with your budgeting process. If you need any help or need somebody to be strategic with you on it, keep me in mind. I love projects like that. And I've helped a lot of associations get through difficult times when they aren't quite sure how to handle issues with their budget. Okay, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about financial responsibilities of the treasurer and of board members. So important thing to remember, just an important concept when you're serving on your board is the concept of your fiduciary duty to the corporation. So if you are serving as a director at large or an officer of your association, you have a fiduciary duty to act in the best interests of your association. And one of those duties is a duty of care. And so this really goes hand in hand with what are some important financial responsibilities of the treasurer and board members. Um, so I'm going to start a little bit with the treasurer's responsibilities, and then I'm just talk about directors at large. So I've served as the treasurer of my association um, for several years. I'm not currently the treasurer, but I have been the treasurer in the past. And other than being the board president of your association, which truly is a huge responsibility and a huge time commitment for um, you know an individual. Serving as a treasurer is equally important, maybe not quite as large of a responsibility in turn and time commitment as the president, um, but the treasurer has to spend time analyzing, looking at, reviewing the financials. And it's a weekly, monthly type thing. It's not an everyday thing, but it is a, a weekly check-in and definitely a more extensive review every month before the board meeting. So let's talk a little bit about what are some things that treasurers are typically doing. Um, so treasurers are typically a signer on the association's bank account. In some cases, management companies are allowed to sign checks on behalf of the association. Um, in other cases, up to a certain dollar amount maybe. In other cases, the treasurer is um, maybe a co-signer with another board member on the association's checks that are being written. Just depends on how your association is structuring that. Um, if you are signing checks, before you sign it, well, first, never sign blank checks. Never sign a pile of blank checks. That is a breach of your fiduciary responsibilities to the corporation and a horrible idea. 
So if you are signing checks for your association, you should be receiving them with the backup information attached to it. So the bill that needs to be paid, what you should do is look at the check, look at the bill and make sure that the numbers match, make sure that there aren't any late fees, make sure it's the right bill for your association. We have seen cases over the years where an HOA pays a bill of another HOA for like a decade and then they find out oh my gosh, we have paid the wrong bill for a decade. That shouldn't be happening. So make sure that it's for your association. Um, make sure that um, the amount that you're paying is correct. Make sure you're paying it in a timely basis. Also, as a treasurer, look for variances. If you see the water bill and the water bill is doubling or tripling, you know, at certain times of the year, you will see that. Like when we're doing overseeding, it's obviously going to be, there's going to be more water that's going to be used. Um, but if it's not an overseeding water issue, there may be a leak. And it's important that if you're seeing a variance on a bill that you're asking questions like, hey, this bill seems high, you know, we need to go out and have the water company take a look at this to see if there's a leak. So um, you need to be strategic on that to save your association because I have seen associations that overpay on water leaks for months and it could end up being thirty dollars or $40,000 expense for your association. So um, take care when you're reviewing and signing checks for the association. Another responsibility is look at the bank statements for your association and you should see an exact replica of the bank statement, the original, or maybe you have online access to look at the bank statements and you should be carefully reviewing every page of the bank statement every month to make sure that you're not getting overdraft charges, to make sure that everything seems in order, that money isn't being electronically transferred and making sure that the amount of money that's in the, on, in the bank account is consistent with what your uh, balance sheet says. Also, reserve funds, same things um, with that, making sure that the money, if you have, let's say you're investing your reserve account money in CDs, when are the CDs expiring? Are the CDs with um, FDIC insured banks? That's very important. Are we under the limit? for FDIC insurance. Like you wouldn't want to have all your money tied up in one bank and you have, it's over the FDIC insurance rate. Um, and so you need to be analyzing this every month. Now I know I saw kind of a weird thing on our financials for my association. We had a couple CDs at a little bit higher rate um, with some banks that were foreign banks. Like I, I can't remember exactly the names of them. I think it was like Bank of China and Bank of India. And I was concerned about that because there had been some publicity that I had seen you know, in the Wall Street Journal about some of these banks having some issues. And so I asked a question, hey, is that bank FDIC insured? And got the answer that yes, it was. And I tried to steer my board back to, you know, some of the more conservative United States banks so that I had a higher comfort level based upon the news I was reading in the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, so looking at when the CDs are coming up for renewal, having a plan um, so that the money is reinvested. And right now the interest rates are a little bit higher. So making sure that you're making a good business decision on the CDs, you may be able to get a higher rate um, right now. Looking at the budget. 
you have to be able to explain at the board meeting to the board, are we on track for 2022? You're looking at the budget right now for 2022. Are there overages? Will they correct themselves? Why are there variances in the budget? Why are we 40% over budgeted for utilities? And how are we strategically going to make up for that so we have enough money in November and December to pay our bills? So it's a thinking job being on the board as the treasurer. You need to be looking at all these different things, the checks, the budget, the bank statements, um, the reserve account, CDs, also looking at the balance sheet for your association. Um, And if you aren't sure how to read a balance sheet, we have a great resource for you on how to read an HOA or condo association balance sheet, which we're going to be sharing with you. And you can also find it at activerain.com. Um, and that's a really good resource for you as you're you know, reading the balance sheet. Some Another point I want to make about the financials, if you're serving as the treasurer, all financials should be current. Obviously, there's always a month lag. So like I'm going to be having my board meeting on Thursday this week, and we are going to be reviewing the July financials. So from January 1st to July 31st, 2022, we will be reviewing at our board meeting on Thursday. And if you're just a board member at large, like now I'm serving just as my board uh, as a board member, which has been kind of nice, actually, because it takes a little bit of the pressure off of you. So what I do as just a board member at large and not the treasurer or the president of our association is the night before the board meeting, I pull out the board packet and I look at the financials myself and I check to make sure that the checks that are all attached to the board packet look legitimate. Um, I analyze the year-to-date budget. I usually have a highlighter and I highlight the things that are over or under, hoping that the treasurer is going to explain it. I look at the bank statements for the same things that we talked about that the treasurer should be looking at, um, but I just quickly look at it, like maybe a minute for each bank statement. I look at the reserve account. I look at when CDs are expiring, and I just use my highlighter, and I highlight things that I may have questions on. Hopefully, at the meeting, the treasurer will answer the questions before I even ask a question, but it's my job as a board member to you know, also help the treasurer and be like, hey, have you guys thought about this or the CDs coming up or we've got a lot of money in this one bank Um, We're over the FDIC limit. Should we transfer some money? Just being proactive and helpful because sometimes um, having a second person looking and being proactive on it is helpful to the board too. You know, maybe I spend 10, 15 minutes the night before the board meeting looking through the financials. I'm pretty good at it now because I was a treasurer and it could be as little as five minutes. Um, And then I ask questions at the meeting if there are questions. And I'm not asking questions to challenge anybody or to be rude. I'm asking questions as a helpful board member. There's a a fine line on that. I don't like to see boards that are dysfunctional and they don't get along and then they're fighting and it's like they're trying to pick, pick, pick to make the treasurer look bad. That's not what I'm doing. I'm just trying to be a proactive, helpful board member. Okay, so hopefully that gives you some good tips on what the financial responsibilities are of the treasurer and of board members as you navigate your time on the board. Making sure your association is in good financial health is really important. We can't have large shortages, um, you know, in income. So you've got to keep your finger on those delinquencies. And we've been really lucky. We've been kind of like in a honeymoon period since the pandemic started, where people are paying their assessments and 
yet, but we've noticed the last two or three months, we're starting to see a drop in the number of people that are paying their assessments on time. And we're starting to see lots of files be turned over to our firm. So as a board member, um, and especially as a treasurer, looking at that delinquency list, and once the owners are more than 60 to 90 days delinquent, getting that file to be leaned or that lot to be leaned and then sending it to the attorney to take legal action is a very smart idea because the longer you wait on debts to collect them, the harder it is to collect. So really keep an eye on that as we move forward into the last quarter of 2022 and into 2023. Okay, our last topic for today is how to prevent fraud and embezzlement in your HOA or condominium community. Unfortunately, theft of association funds is becoming more and more common in associations. Arizona newspapers, all you have to do is Google Arizona HOA embezzlement, and you will see your Arizona condo embezzlement. You will see hundreds of articles, unfortunately, showing instances where maybe the management company or maybe a board member has misappropriated funds of the association. So this topic is not something that's an outlier that never happens. This happens all the time. And what I want to give you today are some tools so that it doesn't happen to your association. And for those of you who have known me for a long time, like I said, I've been in the industry 25 years. So I served on my board many years ago. I started having kids in 2006. And so I got off my board right before I had my son in 2006. And then I was off it you know, until 2016. So I had 10 years off. This happened to my association when I was not on the board anymore. And so I want to just warn you that these type of things do occur. It even happened at my association. So um, in, in our situation, just give you a quick little summary. When I left the board in 2006, everything was in order. The finances were, you know, we had a reserve study funded at 80%. Everything was fine. And over a decade, a manager came into the association and misappropriated over $500,000 of the association's funds. And it was done in many different ways. It was depositing homeowner checks into a separate burner bank account, for lack of better words. It was transferring money from the association's bank account to this managers to pay bills. The manager bought a BMW and a Range Rover. I mean, just crazy stuff, right? And was paying all of these bills with the association's funds. So if you think it can't happen to you, you're wrong. It can happen. Um, and I want you to know that I got back on our board in 2016, and I was one of the people that helped discover the embezzlement. And we put the manager in jail. And the manager served jail time, not a lot, unfortunately. Our ju judicial system, you know, I would have liked a lot more time than this particular person got in jail. Um, and we did, you know, we were made whole by being strategic and smart on using our insurance, our fidelity bond, and also going after the bank for allowing a lot of the nonsense that was allowed um, with the transferring of funds and paying of bills improperly. 
So if you ever are in this situation as a starting point, know that our firm is a great resource for you. We've helped other associations who have had problems with embezzlement or misappropriation of funds. And I personally unraveled the situation at my association and came out with things much better. So just to give you an idea, we were down to like our last 200,000 for the association. Back in 2016, we weren't even sure we were going to be able to pay our bills. And fast forward now to 2022, we have almost $3 million in our reserve account. And we have definitely turned things around and have put in place some very smart procedures so that this never happens again. And I'm going to share those with you right now. Okay, so what can associations do? Be vigilant. I think that's the most important thing. Be on top of your finances, like we just talked a few minutes ago, doing that review every month, making sure your treasurer has some financial experience and understands what their responsibilities are. Um, They don't have to have a master's in business. Okay, they don't. Um, They just have to be looking at the finances carefully and checking to make sure that the association's money isn't being misappropriated. So here are some things, some examples of what misappropriation or fraud looks like in an association. So maybe someone's just taking cash, outright taking of cash, petty cash, transferring money from the association's bank account into their bank account, faked expenses. So submitting receipts for things that haven't been done or making up receipts, or maybe the the receipts are for something that was for the person's personal use, and they're saying it's association light bulbs or something. Um, Non-existent employees or former employees included in the payroll. Transferring of association funds to another community, so another association, or to a management company, or to the manager personally. Using association funds as collateral on a personal loan. Showing investments on the financial statements that actually don't exist. So they're saying, oh, you have $100,000 in this CD, but there's never any proof that the money is actually in the CD. And, you know, maybe they've misappropriated that money somewhere else and they're just putting it on a, in a Word document that, oh, you've got $150,000 with Wells Fargo. And you want to actually see that Wells Fargo statement so that you're seeing that the money is actually there. Um, And then a manager paying personal bills with association funds, which is something that I gave an example with my association. Okay, what are the warning signs? What should be the red flashing lights for your association that, hey, something isn't right here? So missing bank statements and reconciliations. Um, I wanted to say this in the financial part, but I, I forgot. So if you have your management company or your treasurer is like three, five, six, eight, nine months behind in giving the finances to the board, that is a warning sign, 100% that something isn't right. You should be getting your financial statement for, and your bank statements and everything for your association. If you're having your meeting in August, you should have the July financials included. Now, there are times where, you know, maybe you have your board meetings early in the month, like the first week of the month, then you're always going to be a month behind. So let's say you have your August board meeting the first week in August. Well, then you probably will only be reviewing your June financials. Most boards meet the second or third or fourth week of the month so that they have the full financial picture of the association from the month before. So if you aren't seeing 
regularly your bank statements, reconciliations, financials in a timely basis, that's a warning sign that things aren't right. Maybe general ledgers that don't balance, missing documents, altered documents, photocopies of things um, versus originals, unexplained cash shortages. So a big warning sign should be your management company is contacting you saying, we need to transfer the money from the reserve to you know, the general account today or the electric bill isn't going to clear. You know, it'll bounce. I mean, that is not how your association should be operating. That should be a warning sign. Why are we having an unexplained cash shortages? Another thing, a lot of overdraft or other bank charges that we can't explain. You know, multiple overdrafts is not something that is normal for an association. Authorized credits to receivable accounts. Um, you know, maybe they're crediting that somebody paid something, but they actually never did, and the money's being routed somewhere else. Increased in past due accounts. Duplicate payments to vendors, that's a very common one because as the treasurer is signing checks, they may not have noticed that two weeks ago we signed the same check for APS and now we're signing it again. So really having somebody who's on top of things signing the checks is important. Unauthorized purchase transactions and payment for unspecified services. So I know with my association, we also had all these payments to plumbing bills and um, ended up that the plumber had a relationship with our manager and it was very difficult to prove that the work was ever done. And so accounting checks and balances, having these in place and reviewing your financials like we talked about about five minutes ago are vital steps to protecting the association's assets. But we have to be vigilant and we have to be aware as you're serving on the board. You can't just check out and not look at the board packet until you walk into the board meeting. Um, we need people to be engaged and caring about the association, looking at the financials every single month. And the managers are less likely or the board members are less likely to steal from you if you are aware and asking questions and engaged and looking at things. They're on our, we have a cheat sheet on this topic, which we're going to be sharing with you. Um, I think we already have shared it with you in the chat on um, Facebook and on Zoom. And part of our cheat sheet talks about the triangle of opportunity. And there's a study done about why people steal money from organizations. And one of the, you know, there's a need for it. You know, so maybe the person is going through a divorce and they don't have enough money or they have charged up a bunch of money on their credit cards or they have a gambling problem. So the need is like one aspect of it. Another aspect is the opportunity. So no one would even notice, right? That because they don't even look at the financials, they don't ask to see the bank statements. They sign blank checks, they won't even notice. And then the third tier of it is justification. I work so hard for the association. I should be paid more. And so it's just kind of a really interesting triangle of the mind of somebody who's stealing from an association. So keep that in mind. Be engaged. Be vigilant. Look at everything. Ask questions. Um, remember that the board of directors every month should be setting aside time to talk about the financials. It should just be a regular entry on your agenda for you to discuss at a board meeting. 
Typically, the discussion lasts somewhere between five and 10 minutes. Just if you're wondering how long, um, you know, that discussion is typically handled for more, most board meetings. But ultimately, remember, the buck stops at the treasurer. And the treasurer has the extra responsibility to be vigilant with the oversight of association funds. Make sure as you're navigating, serving on your board, that you're using really strong professional advisors who you trust and who aren't aligned with your management company, let's say. Um, So having an attorney who's independent, an insurance agent, so that you make sure that you have the proper insurance in case this should ever happen. You know, having a fidelity bond is very important for your association. Having a CPA that you can ask questions to. These are all really key advisors for your association as you're navigating finances. Um, Also making sure you have enough insurance coverage. So talking to your insurance agent and saying, how much fidelity insurance do we have and who does it cover? And, you know, asking the questions so that you have the protections. We were so lucky as our association, we had a million dollar fidelity bond, which was really helpful in making us whole again. But most associations only have like 50 grand for a fidelity bond. So it's a really good question to ask to your agent, how much more would it cost to increase our fidelity bond the next time that you renew your insurance? It's typically done through your director's and officer's policy. It's an add-on. How much more would it cost if we up that to 100 or 150 or 250 or 500, whatever you know, you're, you'll comfortable with? And then review the coverage that the insurance company is offering um, to make sure it meets your needs. And all this is listed on our cheat sheet. So you want to make sure it covers employee dishonesty, forgery or alteration of records, protection while on association premises, protection while in transit regarding association business. So if a money bag is stolen or something like that, money orders and counterfeit currency and computer fraud. Okay, so let's finish up now that I've scared you, right? Sorry to do that to you, but um, let's finish up with what are our tips so that this doesn't happen to you? What are some tips to be aware and vigilant and take control of the situation so that your association never has any money taken from you? Um, So like I said, keep association records up to date. Don't fall behind on financial statements. Don't fall behind on budgets. Make sure you're assigning control of your reserve fund to the entire board, not one person and not the management company. Typically, the reserve fund has the most money for your association in one place. Um, Also, make sure that your reserve funds are in an FDIC-insured bank and that you're moving them around so that you're under the limits of the FDIC insurance. Monthly financial reports should be prepared and made available for board review. And what's typically included in these monthly financial reports is going to be a balance sheet for the association, um, the year-to-date budget, a statement of revenues, expenses, the bank statements for all the bank accounts, all the CDs. These are typically a delinquency list um, are the typical things that you're going to see in your monthly financial reports. Um, Really think about requiring two signatures, maybe one being a board member, maybe one being the management company, um, maybe two board members on all checks or transfers greater than a pre-designated amount. 
I know management companies get really mad when I say that because they just want to be able to write checks. But talk about this with your management company. Um, If the management company is going to be signing checks on your behalf, make sure that you are receiving all of the backup online and that you are checking the backup to make sure that they, if they are signing checks, that they, it's for your association and you're reviewing the bills after the fact. Um, But I really would prefer if you have at least one board member signing checks for your association. Prior to signing checks, authorized check signers should review the invoices and supporting documents. We've talked about that quite a bit today. Reviewing the bank statements and reconciliations on a monthly basis. Keep only a small amount of petty cash on hand in a secure place and have a specific procedure for keeping track of the petty cash. Review the delinquent receivable balances so that you know who's not paying, whether it's assessments, if they're not paying, different things that might be owed to the association, you should be reviewing those. Making sure that you're purchasing the correct insurance so that your association is protected in the event that there is some form of embezzlement. Um, Having an audit review or compilation done on a regular basis. Now, remember, the law in Arizona says that you have to have an audit review or compilation every year. You are only required to have an audit done by a CPA if your documents require the audit to be done by a CPA. So it's kind of a loophole. You know, a lot of associations don't have a full-blown audit by a CPA, but it's a good idea to do it, even if your documents don't require the audit to be done by a CPA. What we would recommend is maybe every other year or every three years, if you can't afford it, every year. And what you can do is just take three years of records to your CPA and say, we're giving you three years, you randomly pick a year so that you know no one knows what year is going to be audited. And last but not least, I hope this never happens to you, but if your board does discover that funds are missing or you're suspicious that funds are missing, reach out to your trusted advisors, your lawyer who is independent from the management company. I do not represent management companies. I have no special relationship with a management company. I represent the association. So if you're contacting our firm where there's potential serious problem like this, I would never, ever, I mean, this is against my responsibilities as a lawyer, breach your trust by going to the management company and telling them. I would advise you independently on what steps you need to take to verify whether or not there actually is embezzlement or theft or fraud of your association funds, help you get the suspected fraud perpetrator away from a position of control, put a stop on bank activity, help you notify your insurance carrier. These are all things that we can navigate together if you're in this unfortunate situation. And I hope it never happens to you because it is a nightmare if it happens. I can tell you, it took my association, we were in a tailspin. Gosh, for one year, it was a really big job to, you know, work on all this. The second year wasn't as bad, but it was about two and a half years um, to get the situation resolved. And a lot of sleepless, sleepless nights, frankly, trying to untangle the web of deceit that the manager had formed. So um, I hope that never happens to you. Make sure that you're taking a look at our cheat sheet that we've shared with you on tips for preventing theft and fraud of association funds. It has a great summary of really everything that we've talked about here today on that topic. So it's a good refresher. Um, you might want to share that with your board too. Okay, so now we are at the question time. We've got 19 questions that have been submitted. So we're going to step right in and start answering questions. 
So first question, are reserve studies for condominium associations a legal requirement? So by legal requirement, I'm going to assume that you mean like, is it required by Arizona law? No. Um, reserve studies are not required by Arizona law. You may have a requirement in your association's documents, although I doubt it, but it's possibility, so you may want to check. Just so you know, Arizona law does require that associations disclose to buyers the amount of money in the reserve and also disclose a copy of the reserve study or a summary of the reserve study if it's over 10 pages um, to a buyer. So you have some disclosure requirements of how much money you have in your reserve and to give them a copy of the reserve study if you have one done. But there's actually no legal requirement under Arizona to mandate that you have a reserve study done. But that being said, it's a really good idea for planning purposes, for the maintenance and capital improvement replacement to have a reserve study for your association. Okay, next question. What are the pros and cons of enacting a capital improvement fee for buyers of homes in our HOA? Um, so we actually have a great cheat sheet on this um, called transfer fees and disclosure fees. A capital improvement fee is kind of another name for like a transfer fee. Sometimes the transfer fee is used for long-term capital improvements. Um, but why is a capital improvement fee a good idea? Well, it's just so everybody's on the same page. It's a fee that's typically paid by a buyer. It's like a buy-in fee when they purchase a lot or unit in the association. And um, it can be anywhere from a percentage of the sales price to a flat dollar amount. And it's all outlined in the CCNRs. So there's a specific statute in Arizona that requires if you're going to charge a capital improvement fee, it needs to be in your CCNRs and you have to meet the specific criteria of that statute. And that's all on our cheat sheet on disclosure fees and transfer fees, which my office has already shared with you um, right now in the chat. So pros are it helps fund um, your reserve and it is a, a mechanism to get income into your association. I'd say probably 75 to 80% of associations are doing this as a mechanism to fund your reserve so that you can continue to make improvements and upgrades and replacements in your association. It's very common. Some cons on it are, and another pro I guess I would say is that the current owners aren't paying in. It's the new owners who are coming in are paying in. Some cons are that it's probably not fair in some cases that the new owners are getting stuck with having to pay large amounts to, to buy in the association. Some people think that's not fair. I think if you're setting the capital improvement fee or the transfer fee at a reasonable rate, I think you can overcome that argument that's con. Um, and because it's so prevalent now, I mean, there's not that many associations that don't do it, but con could potentially be that, hey, someone's not going to buy my property in this association because of this capital improvement fee. Although I can tell you it's working with over a thousand associations, I've never seen a sale go bad because of that. And I think a con is that maybe we're pushing too much on the, the, the new owner and maybe the current owners should be paying a little bit more to fund the reserves because they've been living there the longest. But overall, my feeling on capital improvement fees are that they're a good idea as long as they're set at a reasonable rate. 
Question three, regarding short-term vacation rentals. I read somewhere that the owner of a vacation rental must notify their neighbors of the names of their renters and license. Is this true? How do we, the HOA board, know if they have liability insurance? So great question. At the beginning of my presentation today, we talked about the new law that's going into effect on September 24th. And we have a cheat sheet that we also shared with you on the new law. Um, and the bottom line is, is that the city or town is responsible for keeping track of all of these special requirements starting September 24th. And so, you know, having the emergency contact information, the city or town is going to have to do that. Uh, getting the permit, the owner is going to have to get that with the city or town. You know, that the owner must notify all the single family residential properties adjacent to directly and diagonally across the street from the property. The owner is probably going to have to, you know, sign some sort of a verification with the city or town. Um, and displaying the permit um, on the advertisement. That's going to be something that's an onerous on the owner landlord and the city is going to be responsible for enforcing it. Same thing on the insurance. And so the association's role is really kind of minimal on that because the city is going to be the one that is responsible for making sure it's done. I suppose that one thing the board can do is make a public records request to the city or town to make sure that owners are doing it. That would be something that you could do. Um, you know, requiring the owner to give you this information, I don't think you can because the statute in Arizona is very specific on the type of things that we can ask the owner to provide to us. And it's limited to just the names of the adults residing in the property, the vehicle descriptions of the cars that they drive and their license plate numbers, and, you know, how long the tenancy is going to be. That's it. We can't ask for anything other than that. So, you know, we're going to have to kind of backdoor it and go to the city or town to find out that information. Next question, if an owner lives in the house and also has family living with them, does that affect with the new legislation? I'm assuming you're talking about the new legislation regarding short-term rentals. And if there's no money being exchanged with the family that's living with them, probably does not affect this. Question five, some associations in out-of-state have restrictions on rentals to include caps, like a percentage of units that are allowed to be rented. Ownership, such as an owner cannot rent until the owner has occupied for a certain number of years. Is this possible in Arizona? Yes, an association could write a CCNR amendment to include this information if they so choose. That's something that can be done. Now, on the percentage of units allowable to be rented, our firm typically doesn't recommend that because it's really hard to determine who should be in that percentage. And if somebody doesn't win the lottery to rent that year, they potentially could sue the board. It's just complicated. Also, having like a time period that they have to own before they can rent, that can be put in the CCNRs. I have seen some associations starting to do that. Um, but again, that would need to be done in a CCNR amendment. Question six, is there a timeline date on the increase to the HOA members? So I'm wondering, is there a timeline date? So I'm guessing the question, maybe just to reframe it, is so if you're going to have an increase to the assessment rate, how much notice should you give to the HOA members? 
Well, as a starting point, look at your documents, your CCNRs. It may say something in there about a timeline that you'd have to give. It's kind of unusual provision, but it could be in there. I would say from a practical standpoint, um, there's no legislation on this, just so you know. From a practical standpoint, I would say giving owners at least 30 to 60 days notice of an increase seems reasonable to me. That would be what I would recommend. But ultimately, there is no requirement. Uh, But if you want people to comply, obviously, and pay the higher correct rate, you're going to want to give them plenty of notice. Okay, um, number seven, do any of these legislative changes help out those of us as private condo owners who live under the management of declarant? Thank you for your constant work on behalf of condo owners. Well, that's really nice. Thank you for saying that. Okay, so do these legislative changes help us under the management of the declarant? Probably no. None of the legislative changes that I talked about here today really are, I'm not sure what you mean by help who live under the management of the declarant. But in some cases, we're we're hearing that the declarant, you know, when they're in control of your board, they're not giving owners a lot of rights and they're not sharing information and having board meetings. And so it's always a really difficult time for owners that are, you know, living under, let's say, a declarant regime that's running the board. Not always. There's some declarants that are awesome and they um, are developing large master plan communities and they are doing a great job of communicating and having owners be involved. And the only reason why they're still the declarant is because they're just finishing up the development of the community. And as soon as the opportunity comes, they're going to move on to their next development and have a smooth transition to you know whoever the new board is. Um, but sometimes you do have bad situations with declarants. Unfortunately, none of the legislative changes that we talked about today are going to help you with that situation. You may want to take a look at, you know, we have a cheat sheet on transition from declarant to homeowner control that may give you some tips on where to look in your CCNRs to determine when that transition needs to take place and what are the common issues as a helpful starting point. You may also want to just reach out and talk to your declarant and say, hey, we want to get more involved. We need more communication from the declarant. How can we improve our relationship between the homeowners and the declarant while you're still in control? Question number eight, where should prepaid dues show in your monthly financials? What is best, cash versus accrual? Oh, that's a tough one. Okay, so where should the prepaid dues show in your monthly financials? Sometimes there's a separate line item for that. Sometimes it's just lumped in with your on your income statement. It's just lumped in as, as already being there. If it's lumped in with the, the regular assessments that aren't prepaid, it can show a false sense of security in terms of, you know, you may have other owners who aren't paying and prepaid owners not having a separate line item makes it look like you, you know, are fine in terms of the income that's coming in. But really, when you get closer to like November and December, you're going to start to get a real scary reality that those prepaid dues are whittling down. And now you're realizing that, hey, 10% of our owners aren't paying their dues and we don't have enough money for December. So I think it's best to have them on a separate line item on your budget. And also on your financials, if you're able to do that. What's best, cash versus accrual? Talk to your CPA. I don't really have an opinion on that. I know that associations use both. I'm not a CPA, so it's hard for me to give you my opinion on that. 
And that would be my recommendation. Okay, question nine, can we subtract late fees from the HOA dues when a resident makes an HOA payment or do we keep a separate tally for HOA dues and late fees? Okay, so let's see, can we subtract late fees from the HOA dues? So the only time that you can charge a late fee is you need to look at the documents, of course, for your association. You also need to look at state law. So if you are a planned community, um, you can charge a late fee once the assessment is 15 days past due. And it's the it can either be 10% of the assessment or $15, whatever is greater. So that's how you can charge the late fee in a planned community. In a condominium, you're allowed to charge a late fee. It doesn't give a time period that you can charge it after it's past due or an amount. So you want to check your documents for that. Do we keep a separate tally for HOA dues and late fees? I would keep a separate line item on your income and your budget in terms of what revenue you're receiving from late fees. You can keep track of it. Next question from an owner. Our HOA has recorded CCNRs and a plot plan with the Maricopa County Recorder's Office. The association membership recently adopted a restated and amended set of bylaws. It is my understanding there is no statutory requirement. Language in the bylaws be recorded at any official level. Would you consider, suggest, or recommend that the bylaws be recorded with the Maricopa County Recorder's Office? Should a printed copy of this governing document be provided to all property owners within the development? So short answer, bylaws are never recorded with the county recorder's office. That is not something that is done. It's confusing if you do do it. So we would recommend not doing that. We would, however, recommend that a copy of the bylaws be on your association's website or provided to all owners if they request to see a copy of it or if they're changed, you have to provide the updated bylaws to all owners. Next question, number 11, if an HOA has a large ongoing capital project, but due to budgetary restrictions, needs to do the project in phases, have you ever heard of HOAs getting loans to complete the project more quickly? What are your thoughts on this practice? I have a resident that insists that we do this, but as treasurer, I feel that it's a terrible idea. Okay, so we do have associations or I have represented associations that have obtained loans over the past 25 years. Typically, the loans are done at the beginning of the project to help supplement any increases that the association may be making to do the project, or maybe the association can't afford to have an increase in assessments, or maybe the owners refuse to vote for an increase in the assessments or a special assessment. So there's a number of different reasons why you take out a loan. I mean, obviously, you're paying interest on the loan. You're collateralizing your assessment income. So there's a level of danger on that. You, I've never had an association default on a loan, and these are pretty regularly done in our industry so that you know that. So is it a terrible idea? I don't think it is necessarily. I think for some associations that have no other choices, it's an avenue to do capital improvements in your association or things that really need to be done that you can't afford because of poor planning in the past. Switching to get a loan 
to complete a project that's already underway, I'm not even sure the bank will do that, but you might want to reach out to a couple of banks. If you need some names of banks, reach out to me at bmulcahy at mulcahylawfirm.com and I can point you in the right direction on that. And usually these are larger loans, you know, like a million dollars, 500,000, a million dollars. So I don't know the numbers that you're looking at here, but I just wanted to mention that. Okay, can homeowners see the financials that the board members see? Yes, absolutely. Homeowners just need to make a written request to the board that they want to review the financials and that is sufficient. They should provide the financials to you within 10 business days. Now, can you see it at the same real time that the board is seeing it? Probably not because at the board meeting, the board is reviewing it. And if there's any changes or anything that needs to be made, they'll be made after the board meeting. So once the financials are approved, then you can make the request to see the financials. Um, next question, how many board members should represent a neighborhood of 15 homes or lots? So it really, it just depends. I mean, your smaller association, maybe three, maybe five, but really your bylaws dictate the number of board members traditionally or possibly your CCNRs or your articles. Next question, 14, what if none of the board members want to be a treasurer and the position remains unfilled? That's problematic because I'm sure your documents require um, that you have a treasurer in your bylaws. And try to get somebody to step up. Maybe you have the president serve as also as a treasurer, although that's a big responsibility for the president because they already have a lot of presidential responsibilities, but it's not a good idea. So what should you do? Try to pressure somebody to be the treasurer and maybe divide up the responsibilities so that everybody it takes a portion of the responsibility of being the treasurer. Next question, number 15, what does 80% of the reserve fund mean? How do you determine it? So 80% of the reserve fund. Okay, so basically you have a reserve study. Most associations hire an independent qualified reserve specialist company to come in and prepare a reserve study for you. And the reserve study outlines what your different amenities are for your association and which are capital improvements and the useful life of them and how much money you will need each year to replace or repair things um, over a 30-year period. And so 80% of the reserve fund, like some people say, it's just kind of like a slang that's used that says, okay, most associations don't have their reserve funded at 100%. That's not common. So most people say kind of a safe zone for reserve funds is somewhere between 60 and 80%, where if you have that 60 to 80% of your reserve fund, you're probably in a safe area, you know, where financially you're safe. Now, of course, as your attorney, you know, and how do you determine it? You just take the number that your, your reserve specialist company tells you you should have in your account and they'll tell you the percentage. It's actually on the reserve study, you know, what percent you're funded right now. And then each year you're trying to attain hundred percent, but you can look at the number that they say you should have in your account right now, your reserve account, and then you can look at what you have and then you can figure out the percentage that you're funded. Okay. Next question. I see our HOA heading towards a special assessment for replacement of our roads. Our CCNRs do not have a special road replacement fund. The homeowners voted in an assessment increase that was specified as being for the roads, but the board doesn't seem to understand that more than just the money obtained from the increase needs to be set aside. We need to increase the total of the annual set aside. 
they're spending the money elsewhere. I think most of our homeowners will be very surprised when a special assessment comes down for the roads, what should be done. Okay, so I guess I'd have to look at the prior assessment increase that was specified for the roads. Um, I don't know if it was a special assessment or maybe if a portion of the regular assessment was used for the roads. Roads are expensive. The board ultimately determines how the association's funds are spent. But if they you know, say that a certain amount is being used for the roads and then they don't use it for the roads, I think that's problematic, you know, equally problematic. But sometimes circumstances dictate that, hey, there's an emergency. We have to take some of that money that we had allocated for the roads and now you know, replace the front gate because it doesn't open anymore. So there, I mean, there are different things that can come up. So I would encourage them to talk with their attorney about how the funds have been used and maybe have a full disclosure to the owners. And if you need to have a special assessment in the future for roads, that you maybe set that up in a separate account so that the money is segregated and not used for other things. Okay, we have just a few more questions. I'm on question 17 and we have 21 questions. 17, does contacting the Department of Real Estate when the board president and treasurer won't address the serious problem do more harm than good for the HOA? So what you're referring to is the Arizona Department of Real Estate has an administrative law procedure that members and board and associations can use to resolve disputes. Um, they have to be a disagreement or a dispute regarding the association's documents or state law pertaining to associations. And so going to the Department of Real Estate, when you feel that the treasurer isn't using or the association's president and treasurer aren't addressing a problem. I mean, it doesn't do more harm or good for the HOA. It's hard for me to comment on it. What I can tell you is that you'll get their attention if you file a complaint with the Department of Real Estate. You're going to, if it's one claim, you're going to have to pay a $500 filing fee to have the matter heard by an administrative law judge. The judges, the administrative law judges that hear these cases are amazing. They do a wonderful job, and it's a quick, fast, and easy way to get an answer if there is a problem at the association. Now, that being said, because my practice focuses on representing associations, what I would encourage you to do is reach out to your board and let them know that you're thinking about going to the Department of Real Estate to make a complaint on this issue, and you're hoping that they will come to the table and talk with you about it so that you don't have to do that. Give them one final chance so that hopefully they can resolve it with you informally. Next question, number 18. At my last board meeting, I questioned why two purchases or I-series bonds for $10,000 each were not listed on our balance sheet. Two weeks later, there is no explanation for this anomaly on our financial statements. What do I do next? I would ask for a copy of the, you know, any evidence of these bonds. Like, do they exist? I'd also ask for copies of your bank statements um, so that you can cross-check it and your balance sheet and your year-to-date budget. So you can cross-check to make sure that what they're reporting to you, you actually see the written proof for it. Okay, next question, number 19. Please tell me if you think an HOA can require a certain brand of paint to be used on the buildings. I do understand that they can require certain colors, but a brand. 
Okay, so what we are seeing a lot is there's different companies that will come out and do a paint evaluation for associations free of charge. And it's typically when the association is updating their paint colors and um, their paint palettes. And it's actually a really great service because we want associations to stay with the times and maybe Navajo white was in, in the early nineties and late eighties, but now we're going to more earth tones and warmer colors and tans and creams or whatever. And so it depends if your association's documents allow the board to come up with approved paint colors, or if you have a broad rulemaking authority on paint colors, you certainly, your board certainly has the right to, you know, demand that you use a certain brand of paint. But I think also you can match the paint colors. And so you may want to talk with them about, hey, I want to go with a different brand and we're going to match the paint color. Are you okay with that? Recognize that certain paints brands have a longer longevity. So you might be taking the risk of having a lower quality paint um, that you're using, even though you are matching the color. But I would talk about it with the board. Don't just do it because I've had a lot of paint cases over the years and they're problematic and they're expensive. And, you know, it usually results in someone having to repaint their house. And I don't want that to happen to you. Next question, 21 or 20. When can a reserve, reserve fund be used? Our community needs much work needed above our budget. There's plenty of funds. Why are we not allowed to use them? Well, reserve funds are used just for reserve items, so capital improvement items. And so you can't use, you know, the reserve fund to maybe do like some general maintenance work that's not covered under the reserve. You want to be careful. Those funds are allocated for long-term capital improvement projects in the association. And so you can't be robbing Peter to pay Paul. So those are allocated already. Occasionally, we'll see a board because they have no other choice, use reserve funds for non-reserve items. You have to talk with your CPA because you usually have to pay that back in the same calendar year. So I'm just mentioning that to you, that that's something that could be you know, problematic. Um, and it's really not advisable. What you really should be doing is looking at increasing your regular assessment rate to handle the non-reserve items. Okay, next question. How do you handle accounts where the owners don't pay late fees? They pay assessments late, but they don't ever remit, remit payments for the late fees that have been accrued. Okay, so you want to make sure that the owners understand that the late fees we can lean for as well. And so if they don't pay the late fees, we can put a lien on their property. We can file a lawsuit against them for the unpaid late fees. So you just have to take actions to collect on it so that they know that these are things that you can't blow off and there are legal consequences if you don't pay. Okay, last two questions. Should homeowners receive a copy of the board packet for board meetings as well, or should they just be receiving the financial statement and the agenda? So should homeowners receive the board packet for board meetings? You know, it's uncustomary that homeowners get the board packet because the board packet typically contains items that they're not allowed to see, such as like the delinquency list and maybe issues, legal opinions and things that, you know, wouldn't be something that you're allowed to see. What you could do is ask for a copy after the meeting of the board packet with any items that, you know, are not withheld under the law. 
So you could ask for that if you wanted that. But typically at a board meeting, you're only going to be receiving the financial statements and the agenda. Remember, the agenda we're required to provide to all owners at the meeting. The board is. The financial statements we're not required to, but it's just a good idea because it's their money too. You know, they're homeowners. And it's important if you're talking about it that they can follow along. Last question. Why does the percentage funded requirement for reserve funds decrease over the period of the reserve fund period? If money is paid out for a cyclical expense, such as painting, doesn't the reserve fund need to be replenished? Okay, really good question. So what happens is if you looked at a lot of reserve studies like I have over time, there's a fluctuation in terms of, you know, the reserve. So there'll be different times where you're in rebuilding years. And then there'll be different times where you're in spending years. And sometimes they cross over and sometimes they don't. So typically when an association gets a reserve study done for the first time or they're updating it, they're going to be showing a deficit, like the percentage funded is going to be lower. And then over time, like my association, when we were recovering from the embezzlement, we were really, I mean, we were like down at like 4% funded or something really low like that. Now we're up to like 70 or 80% funded. So, you know, there's going to be years where you're rebuilding and then you're going to have a big expense, you know, where you got to redo the clubhouse or something. And then it goes from 80 or 90% funded and then you go down to 40% funded and then you just have to step it up and, and rebuild it. So that's pretty normal. Having it be immediately replenished when you do a big expenditure like roads or repainting, it's just not typically possible unless your association is willing to do a special assessment to fund the reserve. And most associations don't like doing that because it's not a real popular decision when people have to write you know, like a $5,000 check just for the money to sit in the reserve um, to replenish the funds. So um, most associations, you know, don't handle it that way. Most associations will take money every year from the assessment income and put away money every month into the reserve to continue to rebuild it. Now, if it's at an artificially low number, you know, and your percentage, you just, you got to get out of the, the under 10% or under 30% or whatever you're at, you may have to do a special assessment to fund it. Okay, so that's it. So we had a great class today. Thank you so much for being here. At one point, I think we had almost 150 people joining us live. I'm so sorry for the audio and technical difficulties we had at the beginning of today's session. Um, I hate it when that happens, but I appreciate your patience, your kindness, patience, kindness, and encouraging words because we were getting a little hot under the collar here, worrying about things. But um, Morgan, who is my superstar, Morgan Ronimus, was always cool under pressure. We switched out the computers and we got back online really quickly. So for those of you, we will be sharing with all of you um, our cheat sheets and also our script for today so that you can take a look at it if you have any questions or you missed anything. Thank you again for joining us today for class number eight of our virtual HOA Academy, our 2020 virtual HOA Academy. It has been awesome to partner with the cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe, really for over the past two and a half years since the pandemic started to give you live virtual presentations where we can provide information to you on a variety of topics and have a time period 
we can stay and answer your questions for free so that you feel that you are not only able to listen in on a presentation, but then also get immediate feedback to your questions. So um, this format has just been working really well, and we appreciate the large volume of people who are taking advantage of it. A few things to mention as we look forward to our busy month of September, we have several free learning opportunities. We have our first Friday free call-in, um, and that is going to be Friday, September 2nd at 9 o'clock a.m. It's our firm's monthly virtual first Friday free call-in where I answer your HOA and condo legal questions live. Um, you can always find additional details on our first Fridays or any other seminars that we're teaching on our firm's website at mulcahylawfirm.com. Um, you can submit questions uh, that we will answer live on September 2nd, starting now through the morning of September 2nd at 8.45 a.m. Um, so be sure to tune in for that. We usually get a lot of great questions, somewhere between 30 and 50 every month, and we answer every question. Also wanted to let you know, Chandler residents, any of you who are listening in today from Chandler, on Tuesday, September 13th at 5 o'clock p.m., I'm going to be in person at the City of Chandler for their HOA roundtable, where we are going to be discussing hot topics for HOAs and condos. Please visit our website for more information on this event. And again, our website is mulcahylawfirm.com. Um, I'm going to be teaching for the City of Scottsdale for their fall 2022 Scottsdale Neighborhood College. And we're going to be talking more in depth about the new laws that are going into effect on September 24th. And we're also going to cover our most popular topic, which is what are the roles and responsibilities of board members. And last but not least, on September 20th, at 11 a.m., we're going to have class number nine of our Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA Academy. And that's going to be on Zoom and Facebook Live, just like we always do it the third Tuesday of the month at 11 a.m. And we're going to be talking about rental restrictions and amending CCNRs. And you can bet sure as I'm sitting here right now, we're going to be talking about the new legislation because um, that is definitely going to impact how we handle um, rental restrictions and associations. So September is shaping up to be a very busy month. It's back to school for my kids and also back to um, teaching a lot of classes for um, our industry, which I absolutely love doing. So look forward to seeing all of you with our four different teaching opportunities throughout the month of September. Again, if you want any information on them, you can go to our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. Thanks again, everybody, for being here today. Sorry again for some of the technical difficulties and look forward to seeing you in September. Take care. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. The attend of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcast is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation.